Hello, fellow law nerds. Welcome to a brand new episode of Boom Lawyered, a Rewired.news podcast hosted by the legal journalism team that is really excited to be back from our short summer break and ready to pour legal knowledge directly into your ear holes. I'm Imani Gandhi. And I'm Jess Piclo. Rewire.news is dedicated to bringing you the best reproductive rights and social justice news, commentary, and analysis on the web. And the Team Legal Podcast is part of that mission. So a big thank you to our subscribers and a welcome to our new listeners. Yes, welcome. Thank you for joining us. We are back from our brief sabbatical to regale you of news that... Democrats may have finally grown a backbone when it comes to this Kavanaugh nomination, Jessica. It's shocking. What? I know. It is Get it out. is shocking, but it's true. Sincerely, we even have audio proof. Senator Blumenthal issued a FOIA request to the National Archives seeking the full gamut of Kavanaugh's records, including his time as staff secretary. We'd much rather follow the bipartisan process that's been around for years. And today we're announcing that we stand ready to sue the National Archives for Judge Kavanaugh's full records if necessary. Okay, so let's give this some context. The Democrats have filed a Freedom of Information Act request, or a FOIA request, and that's basically a letter that says, hey, give us these documents. And they filed one with the National Archives, who has all of Kavanaugh's documents, and they said, hey, give us the documents. And they're threatening to sue if they don't get those documents answered before the confirmation hearings. Those are set to begin right after Labor Day. So today, we want to talk about this big papers fight in the Kavanaugh nomination. Why is this happening, and just how big of a deal is it? This episode is going to unpack how we got to the point where we might actually have litigation surrounding a Supreme Court nominee. We're also going to tell you why these documents are so important, including what we could learn about Kavanaugh from them. So now we're going to talk about what is actually happening with this disclosure process. So Jessica, what exactly is happening with this disclosure process? A big circus, basically, is what this disclosure process has turned into. So disclosure, broadly speaking, is, as I said in the first segment, give us the documents, right? Well, Republicans aren't giving the documents. So let's talk about that a little bit. First, who isn't giving the documents? That's this guy named Bill Burke. Who is Bill Burke? He happens to represent President Trump's former chief political strategist, Steve Bannon. That's pretty interesting. He also works with all the White House counsel folks like Don McGahn and former White House chief of staff, Rince Priebus, and all of those guys in the Russia investigation. Also lovely. Yeah, Rince Priebus. (laughs) I love that guy's name. Right. Another really interesting tidbit is that he also represents Judge Alex Kaczynski. And for those of you who may not recognize the name, Alex Kaczynski is a very, or was, a very prominent Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals judge who had to resign in disgrace this year due to allegations of sexual harassment, that he was sexually harassing his law clerks, which raises the question... What did Kavanaugh know about this and when did he know it? Because he actually clerked for Alex Kaczynski. And so that has some severe and interesting implications for the hashtag MeToo movement. Yep. So we've got Burke, who worked in the Bush White House when Kavanaugh was there on working on such things like torture policy, which we'll dive into, working with the current Trump White House on Russia investigation. 
working with Judge Alex Kaczynski related to Me Too allegations and is the point person in charge of the Kavanaugh document. So that's all real lovely, isn't it? Good times. He's also working with Chuck Grassley. And Jess, why don't you tell me what that means and why it matters? So in any other normal uh, confirmation and uh, nomination process, uh, this disclosure of documents and candidates' uh, background and their prior work, all of that would just kind of hum along. But what Grassley has done is really put this on partisan steroids. He made a request for Kavanaugh's documents to the National Archives, which has all of them. National Archives said that'll be till the end of October. Grassley said, hmm, I don't think that'll work. I'm going to schedule hearings to start right after Labor Day. Day, and is working with Burke to decide more or less which documents the Judiciary Committee and thus the American people get to see and which ones they don't. So essentially, Grassley is just slow dripping documents, knowing full well that all of the documents are not even going to be available until about a month and a half after he scheduled these hearings, and certainly not in any way giving any time to Democrats to actually review the documents and potentially release information they think is important to the American people. So he's basically just hiding the ball is what you're saying. He is. He is. He's hiding the ball. And none of this should be a surprise to Republicans. Brett Kavanaugh served in the Bush White House for five years. He produced a lot of paper. I mean, we're talking about damn near one million pages of documents in total (laughs) here. I'm sorry, that caught that got caught in my... Did you say one million pages of documents? Just about. And so far, there have been approximately 200,000, if I'm being generous, pages of, of uh, Kavanaugh documents released. Some of those have been as a result of third-party FOIA requests. So not even just from Republicans playing nice and square in any capacity. So yeah, we've got confirmation hearings in about two weeks and approximately 700, 800,000 pages of the documents yet to be released. Oh, well, that's not surprising g- uh, considering how shady these Republicans are, are acting. But what is also not surprising is the type of crap that they've actually released. And that type of crap is, well, it's crap. I mean, a lot of, for example, Ginny <laughs> Thomas, right? Ginny Thomas is Clarence Thomas's wife, right? She's mm-hmm. the woman who drunk dialed Anita Hill a few years ago and demanded satisfaction for what Anita Hill did to her husband during the confirmation hearings, which as we all know was tell the truth about how Clarence Thomas is a sexual harasser, but that's another episode for another time. Oh, she These- also likes to harass the Parkland survivors on her Facebook page. Oh my God. Yeah, she does. She goes after David Hogg and, and Emma Gonzalez and all of those kids who tragically had to watch their classmates gun down, she's harassing them. So she's a real peach of a woman. Yeah, she's But lovely. she also happens to be, she's also very, very involved in the Heritage Foundation. And so some of the documents that have been released, and I'm just going to pause, pregnant pause here, 40,000 pages of documents that are all Ginny Thomas's emails. <laughs> 40,000 emails from Ginny Thomas. Leave 40. my husband alone. <laughs> Stop being mean to Clarence. I mean, there is no way that anybody needs to see 40,000 pages of, hey, do you want to come to this Heritage Foundation event? Or, hey, please stop picking on Clarence. It's absurd. It really is absurd. And I think it's a it's a really, I mean, yes, it's absurd, but it's also a just 
perfect touchstone of an example of the Republicans completely thumbing their nose at this process because we are talking about really serious issues here and a lifetime appointment to the most powerful court in this country. And the Republicans are instead releasing, oh, I don't know, 40,000 emails of Ginny Thomas's Heritage Foundations and like, you know, other sort of fluff happy hour kind of things. It's absurd. There is nothing of substance here. There is no there there. There's no there there. And it's really crucial to understand that this is not the way the process is supposed to work. This is not normal. They're treating the disclosure process like it's discovery in an adversarial litigation, right? So like Jess and I were both lawyers. We were both litigators. We both have been involved in discovery whereby you either refuse to turn over everything Mm -hmm. and force the court to order you to turn stuff over Mm -hmm. or you do these document dumps you just Mm -hmm. you dump boxes and boxes boxes and boxes of documents on people and then you maybe hide the important stuff in between you know thousands of pages of Ginny Thomas's risotto recipes and hope (laughs) the other side never finds them and the problem here is that the Republicans are treating us like we are the other side in litigation, like mm-hmm. we are the adversaries instead of pub- the public, the people to whom Kavanaugh is going to be accountable and for whom Kavanaugh's rulings will have a lifetime effect. This man is going to be on the court should he get on the court for 40 years. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, that that uh, document dump example is so perfect because, yeah, like you would take an email and this is what we're seeing with Ginny Thomas here. That's, you know, like event at, you know, uh, Friday at 4.30 and there's 20 people in the CC and then anytime somebody responds to that, you produce that response as right. a new response in litigation. So you're like, I don't know what you're complaining about. I just gave you 40,000 pages, but it's 40,000 of the same damn page. <laughs> Right. And it's absurd. And, you know, they're also one of the things that they're trying to do, which is really, really frustrating, is they're trying to downplay Kavanaugh's role in the White House as being just a secretary, when really he was counsel working in the White House. I mean, the word secretary evokes something like, you know, a 1950s style Don Draper situation where you've got a woman who's just running around making coffee for people. But that's not what Brett Kavanaugh was. He wasn't the coffee gal. He was the lawyer. He was the Mm -hmm. guy who decided what documents were important enough to put on President Bush's desk. And so while McConnell is running around saying, ah, Kavanaugh, he was just a secretary. Really, he was just the president's inbox or he was a document traffic cop. But even that role, even if he was just a document traffic cop, what documents he saw as important is important to us to know what kind of jurist he's going to be. Absolutely. And so this has been a lot. Let's kind of recap it because, wow, we are talking about uh, a triumvirate of terrible here when it comes to (laughs) disclosures on the Kavanaugh nomination, right? So what do we have? We have some really bad stuff going on here. We have Bill Burke, who's working with the Trump White House and defending the Russia probe. He is in charge of dripping, dripping, dripping the documents. He's working with Chuck Grassley. That's weird and not normal. So far, we've got about 900,000 pages of documents. We've seen 200,000. That means 700,000 to go. And we've got two weeks till a nomination hearing. That's also weird. And what has been released has been pretty useless and intentionally so. Though the only conclusion that we can really come to is like Amani said, they're treating the American public as an adversary. And coming up, we're going to talk about the purpose of document disclosures, why it's inappropriate to treat the American people as an adversary, and how this whole process is supposed to work. 
Okay, Amani, so what is the purpose of these document disclosures anyway? How is this in a normal time and in a normal administration? How is this supposed to work? All right, so first I'm going to have to tell you a little something about the Presidential Records Act. Ooh, the presidential. Ooh, it's exciting. <laughs> the Presidential <laughs> Records Act is an act that governs the preservation of and the access to official records of U.S. presidents, right? So all presidents produce paper, and mm -hmm. the PRA is the law that governs how those documents and how that paper is supposed to be preserved. Congress passed this law after President Nixon tried to destroy the Watergate tapes when he left office. The purpose of the act is to make it crystal clear that presidential records belong to the American people. They do not belong to the president himself. And therefore, former presidents do not have an unlimited right to control access to their records. The law gives Congress a right to special access to official presidential records that are stored at the National Archives. And it does not allow presidents to unilaterally impose restrictions on Congress's ability to get those records. So again, here we have the PRA, which was enacted in response to one of the biggest scandals in presidential history, Watergate. And the law says that Congress has a right to access these records and the president can't prevent Congress from getting them. I really sincerely think, based on your summary of the PRA, that nobody in the Kavanaugh camp knows it exists, or if they do, <laughs> intends clearly to follow it. Because literally, I mean, it's a law that says, hey, presidents, your documents, the things that you produce while you were in office and those who were working for you, those belong to the American people, not you. Right. And that matters because, as Nina Totenberg once pointed out, Nina Totenberg, uh, if you don't know, is NPR's legal affairs journalist. She once said that, quote, the confirmation process is the last chance to affect the least accountable branch of government. Right. She's absolutely right. I mean, Nina Totenberg knows her shit, right? The confirmation process, this is the only time the American people are going to see and hear Brett Kavanaugh's uh, speak for himself to his records and to his views. We don't get a vote on his nomination directly. This is the only way. And so Republicans are making it damn near impossible. They're just flouting the law, basically, right? And ignoring it and doing all of this shady stuff and saying, screw you, transparency, we don't need you anyway. Right. And what's particularly frustrating about this is that Democrats aren't asking for some sort of unusual process here. They're asking for exactly the same process that went on when Elena Kagan was nominated, right? Oh, yeah. So let's talk about the Elena Kagan nomination because it's so it's such a perfect example on so many levels. So Justice Elena Kagan, when she was nominated, had a pretty decent paper trail herself, not as long as, as Brett Kavanaugh's, but a decent one because she had served as Solicitor General in uh, the Clinton administration. And Republicans were like, oh, this is a big deal. She has all this paper. You're not going to give it to us. And they sent a letter and Democrats said, you know what? She does have a lot of paper. You should see it. Here, we're going to work with you and disclose it. And, well, damn, that's what they did. And what's frustrating here is that Democrats have sent the exact same letter, except for with the names changed, to Republicans. Mm -hmm. The same letter that Republicans sent to Democrats regarding Kagan, Democrats have sent to Republicans regarding Kavanaugh. And Republicans are thumbing their nose at Democrats and the American people. Absolutely. And Kagan is, is a good example, not just because in that in that case, you know, Democrats once again did the thing and abided by the norms that Republicans are now ignoring, but because 
in the process of releasing the Kagan documents, there were some really good, robust conversations around her record. Uh, for example, when I was doing research uh, and working on for this podcast, I found an article that I wrote way back in 2010 uh, for the Ka- 2010 <laughs> for the Kagan nomination that was basically talking to her critics on the left uh, and responding to concerns they had that Kagan would be soft on choice. And those concerns came up because during the disclosure process, Process, there was a memo that she had written while in the Solicitor General's office that advised Clinton to take uh, a stance and support uh, a bill uh, that was being pushed by then-Senator Tom Daschle from South Dakota that was a later-term abortion ban. And the policy paper said it was basically a strategic wedge. We can look like we're doing something but block a more restrictive measure that would likely pass. And ultimately, her advice worked. And in the process, she had to answer for that and gave a really good uh, response. And at the time, folks on the left were worried that Kagan would be a vote to overturn Roe. And so these are the kinds of discussions that we need to be having about Kavanaugh from his time in the Bush White House. We need to look at those policy papers, look at the things that he thought were important enough to put on President Bush's desk and figure out how he might rule on some of the most crucial issues that are going to affect us. Absolutely. And so next up, we're going to talk about why these Kavanaugh disclosures are so important. More specifically, what are the issues that we're looking at? What can we learn? Or what is he hiding? So Jessica, what could we learn about Kavanaugh? We could learn a lot. He was in the Bush White House for five years during the time when the administration was working out some of its worst uh, policies, particularly with regards to torture and detention, for example. Um, And this has come up once before. So before his nomination, Judge Kavanaugh was a judge, is a judge on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. And that means he had a confirmation and hearing process. So senators asked him about some of this stuff before. In particular, they asked him about his uh, time and work on torture policy and warrantless wiretapping. And Kavanaugh's response at the time in those 2006 hearings was effectively, meh, I didn't do that much. And he said under oath, like he said under oath in response to these questions from Patrick Leahy and Dick Durbin, that he had no knowledge of warrantless wiretapping or torture, didn't he? He sure did. And it's because we've had emails released as part of a Freedom of Information Act request related to his Supreme Court nomination and confirmation and subsequent reporting on that, that this bubble of doubt around Kavanaugh's truthfulness on those initial answers has even come up. He very well could have lied about that, or at least he wasn't very candid. And so if that's the case, if he lied about how much knowledge he had about warrantless wiretapping and torture, what does that mean? I mean, that sounds like it's pretty bad. I mean, how are Patrick Leahy and Dick Durbin supposed to feel about being lied to? I mean, I can imagine that they're pretty pissed. I would be, right? And it's real bad. I mean, one, he lied to get himself on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, and there's not much that we can do about it. Impeachment is really, you know, the avenue there. And that's very rare. I mean, I think we looked it up and it was something like 15 judges have impeached in our 200 and some odd year history. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's a long process. But I mean, also, it shows that Brett Kavanaugh isn't this reasonable, sensible, nonpartisan jurist at all. He is a conservative hack who's willing to do what needs to be done to get to where he wants to go. 
Another thing that we might be able to learn is his thoughts on executive power. And, you know, Kavanaugh's views on executive power are front and center in the debates over his confirmation. And that's because there are critics who are concerned that his writing suggests that he believes that presidents should be able to remove independent counsel at will. Whoa, 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 whoa. That removing an independent counsel just because they want to, that's kind of a big deal with what we've got going on right now. It really does sound like a big deal. And so it is and it isn't a big deal. Because on the one hand, it sounds terrible in light of the ongoing Mueller investigation Mm -hmm. and Trump's near near daily shrieking on Twitter about how it's rigged and it's a witch hunt and crooked Hillary and whatever other nonsense he likes to spout. But on the other hand, it's not as big of a deal as people make it sound like because I actually read some of Brett Kavanaugh's writings on executive power And he's not wrong, right? Like, he seems to think that the way to check executive power is pushback from the public. So, Mm -hmm. for example, if Clinton had tried to just get rid of Ken Starr back during the Lewinsky saga, the public would have freaked out. I mean, we can imagine how much the news would have been covering it, cable news. People would have been talking about how horrible it is that Clinton just up and decided to, to get rid of independent counsel. And the fear of that pushback is enough to make any normal president decide not to do something insane like fire the independent counsel that is looking into that president's own bad doings. But we don't have a normal president, Jess. No, we don't. And I mean, that, like, okay, I'll give Kavanaugh points for reasonableness there, but at the same time, like, he was involved with that star report. He was the one who said that, you know, folks should be asking President Clinton really invasive questions about his relationship with Monica Lewinsky. So, like, what fucking gives? I think what fucking gives is now he's a conservative and he's about to be elevated to the court by a conservative. And so the question becomes, is he, has his... His evolvement, is that a word? Evolution. Evolution is the word I'm looking for. (laughs) Has his evolution on executive power been partisan, right? Is he now willing to give Trump more power to vest all of this power in Trump just because he's a Republican? Power that he was not willing to vest in Clinton. Yeah, I mean, how are we supposed to know what he actually believes? Like, I would love to have a point with Kavanaugh that I was like, yeah, he's pretty reasonable. But like, even this, I that just sounds shady. How on earth do we know or can we get to a sense of like what his views on this really are? Because this is a big deal. It is a big deal. And another thing that he's evolved on, perhaps, is whether or not the case U.S. v. Nixon was rightfully decided. And it was in Ooh, that. What's this? So U.S. v. Nixon is the case where Eight, where by a vote of eight to zero, there were only eight justices at the time, the Supreme Court said that Nixon had to turn over the Watergate tapes and he had to respond to subpoenas. And in back in 1999, Kavanaugh sat on a panel where he basically suggested that the, the Supreme Court got that decision wrong. He suggested that Nixon should not have been forced to turn over those Watergate tapes. Now, since then, he has reversed course, and he's actually said that the Nixon decision is one of the most momentous in judicial history or something like that. But of course, that is now. That is, I mean, he made those comments in 2016, the comments appraising mm-hmm. the decision is one of the greatest moments in judicial history. So, you know, 2016, we're already, you know, staring down the barrel of a Trump presidency. So it's like, how do we know what he really believes? Does it matter do his beliefs depend on who's in office? 
And if his beliefs are so partisan, then that's something that we as the American people need to know because that matters when it comes to trying to figure out how he's going to rule if, for example, Trump up and decides to fire Mueller. And that's the sort of information we might be able to figure out if the Republicans would just disclose the damn documents, right? It really does seem like it's that simple. Just give us the fucking documents so we can review them and figure out who this guy is because this guy is going to be involved in some of the most important decisions involving people, the rights of marginalized people, civil rights, voting rights, all sorts of really crucial issues. And if we don't know how he's going to vote on them, then how can we know what to expect? How can we know how far down the hellhole we're going to go? I don't even want to contemplate how far down the hellhole <laughs> we can go. <laughs> I think the answer is really far down. <laughs> I mean, by way of comparison, how far down are we? pretty far down we sure are oh Amani, this is this is all a lot to take in i mean you know we've just touched on two areas real quickly right uh kavanaugh's work on torture policy and his thoughts on uh executive power and at rewire.news we have also covered kavanaugh's relationship and thoughts on uh roe abortion rights lgbtq rights uh what his impact would have on the disability rights community mm -hmm. so there's the trans a lot community. there, the trans community, um, immigration and detention policy. We've got two weeks to go and 700,000 pages of documents we haven't seen. Right. And so, you know, we're going to end the episode here because we know we've just dumped a lot of information into your heads and we don't want your brain to explode. But first, Jess, let me ask you a question. So we said up front at the top that Democrats have threatened to sue if they don't receive these documents from Republicans. So if Democrats actually sue, what can we expect to happen? Okay, so this is fascinating for law nerds. So uh, gather around, kiddos. Put um, your glasses on. Push them up your nose. <laughs> I, and I'll just go ahead and make fun of myself here for a moment and admit to all of you I had an Orrin Hatch moment the other day where I adjusted glasses that were not on my face to read a document. <laughs> we, we've entered into that stage of life. But so what happens? The Democrats have threatened to sue if they sue what happens. So this turns into a discovery battle within a discovery battle. So at the beginning beginning of the episode, we talked about a FOIA request as a, hey, give me the documents. And Amani helped describe how this is really playing out like civil discovery, and that's the process where both sides exchange information. So a lawsuit will take this to a court, and the court will order um, or not the archives to produce the documents. And that could have an effect of pausing the nomination. There's a lot of things that have to happen for those events to line up, but it's not outside of the realm of possibility. And uh, just last week, I know you appeared on Rise Up with Sonali. It's a radio program. And you had sort of a like a, a kind of a revolutionary idea of what Democrats could do. And I really, really like that idea. So could you explain what that was? Oh, yeah. So I know some folks have been feeling kind of discouraged because just, you know, on the numbers alone, Republicans have the vote if they play really dirty and keep everybody on their side in line. Um, and we don't know that that'll happen. There's there's a lot of uh, pushback happening. But um, if 
Grassley and the Republicans insist on railroading this nomination and confirmation process, then we have a model of resistance that we can look to way back in 2010 in the state of Wisconsin when Democrats, in response to Scott Walker pushing the anti-union agenda that he did, said, just hell with you. We're out. We're leaving. And they fled the state. They left. They, they refused to, to give him a quorum and Republicans a quorum while uh, they were working through parts of that uh, legislation. So that's a model. Democrats they could, just could leave. say, screw you. Democrats, just peace out. That's all. They could just peace out and say, you know what? If you're going to do this, you're going to have to do it without us. And that yeah. would be, I think that would be a really, um, a really strong statement. And I think that would definitely just, that would just ratchet up this nomination to a level of absurdity that unlike we've ever seen besides Bork, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it would really call cold the um, Republican play here because it would force them to have a confirmation vote without a single Democrat present. Um, and should John McCain be absent because of his health issues, it would force them to bring in Vice President Pence, too. So, And that um, would look terrible. I mean, The optics I'm, on that are awful. And uh, the American people does, you know, and, and it, it's an extreme suggestion, um, but these are extreme times. And if the Republicans refuse to allow us the opportunity to properly vet a nominee for uh, the Supreme Court for a lifetime appointment, um, extreme measures might be in order. I agree. I'm all about extreme measures. So that's our episode for you today. We just want to let you know that once the Kavanaugh hearings start after Labor Day, should they actually get going after Labor Day, we're going to be doing reaction pods on the daily. We know how you love our reaction pods, so keep an eye out for that. Also, be sure to join our Facebook group. We have a Facebook group. We've got about 500 members right now. We post a lot of exclusive content, stuff like pictures of Jessica posing with my dog or pictures mm. of Jessica eating oversized chicken pot pies. It's good. And that's the, that's the kind of real gritty content you're not going to be able to get just on Twitter. So please join our Facebook group. Look up Boom Lawyered. Answer the question and we will let you write in. And for all you students going back to school or starting up law school, Godspeed. May the odds be ever in your favor. <laughs> That's it for us today. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at Angry Black Lady. Jessica is at Hegemommy, H-E-G-E-M-O-M-M-Y. Please feel free to hit us up, ask us questions, use the team legal hashtag, and we will see you on the tubes. See you on the tubes. <laughs> Boom Lawyered is created and hosted by Imani Gandhi and Jessica Mason Piclo. The show is produced by Nora Hurley. Our executive producer is Mark Folletti. And Rewire's editor in chief is Jody Jacobson. 